Okay. I guess we got, yeah, 701, so we'll go ahead and get started. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here tonight, and I thank you for the fact that you've been with every one of us throughout this day, whatever, wherever our paths took us. We're grateful, Lord, that you watch over your, your eyes, it says in the scripture, behold all the children of men. And you know our hearts, and we're grateful that you promised to be with us and keep us. Be with our time here this evening, not only uh, here in our study, but in all the other activities throughout the rest of the building. Help your word to find its way into hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, <clears throat> now I've told you this before. <clears throat> but I guess I really mean it tonight. Um, there's no, no way in the world we can get through everything we got to get through, okay? Um, <clears throat> I mentioned, we ended last week with, just touched on the second great awakening, okay? The first great awakening was back in the 1740s. <clears throat> it coincided with the great awakening in England, the Wesleyan Revival, um, and those seem to be somewhat simultaneous both in America and here. Um, in America, there was a second great awakening, generally from like the 17, late 90s through 1835. But that 40 years or so, 45, itself is divided up generally into three different um, eras, if you want to call it. <clears throat> the first one, um, first phase was 1795 to about 1810. Um, that was marked by um, some Methodists, some Presbyterians, and some Baptists that preached mostly in Kentucky and Tennessee. They were, this was frontier, okay, um, on the other side of the Appalachians. And <clears throat> the revival mainly was tied to the kind of spontaneous beginning of camp meetings, meaning people just camped out and they would uh, camp out in a grove of trees or whatever, um, <clears throat> tents, sleeping wagons, whatever. And usually it was elements of those three denominations, Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterians, Methodist primarily, um, that started these... Um, encampments they would call call them and they'd have a lot of preaching praying um just a what it was a i don't know that i'd call it a vacation but almost it was either planting was done harvest wasn't in yet doesn't wasn't time yet um, and so they they usually found themselves in the mid to late summer <coughs> um so the, the, that was like frontier in America. Then the second um, era <clears throat> was about 1810 to 1825. That was um, almost exclusively in New England, okay? Um, among congregational churches. Um, and these were, what? These were much more educated 
um, and you, you would say more high church people. Timothy Dwight, one of the preachers that was significant in the Second Great Awakening. Timothy Dwight was the president of Harvard. So you have the frontier revivalists out in Kentucky and Tennessee, and those were pretty, you know, raw-boned um, lay preachers with a little bit of education, um, a lot of fire, um, whereas in the New England area, um, you had, it was calmer, and it was more intellectuals, more rational, um, more educated, both laity and clergy, okay? Then, the third and last section of the Second Great Awakening was f about 10 years from 1825 to the 1835, 1840. Um, and this was almost exclusively still, still up in sort of New England, but as far uh, west as Ohio, um, south down into mid-Atlantic states. This was almost exclusively the preaching of Charles G. Finney, okay? Now, <clears throat> Charles G. Finney would, looking back from today, minus, minus the money-grubbing, minus the scandals, minus all that, he would have been the first, we could call him the first televangelist, except they didn't have television, okay? But he, and I mean... Um, a professional evangelist in this sense. Um, <clears throat> he was a very polished lawyer. <clears throat> he was from Western New York. And I can't remember, he went to Yale or somewhere, any law degree. Um, and, but he was, he was converted. Um, he got saved and immediately dropped out of the um, legal profession because he felt that he was called to preach and began to preach. Um, and in his training and in his intellect and everything else, um, this wasn't out of the ordinary. He treated every congregation like a jury. And he went all out to convince them. I mean, his preaching was both legal, but it was, you know, it was reasonable. Take you through, a, um, if A is true, B is true, C is true. Um, yet, with, with great, um, what would you call, en enthusiasm. I mean, he wasn't a dead, read a sermon preacher. He's all over the platform and so forth. Um, but... That was a new kind of catch because he had some of the emotionalism of the frontier revivalists, but he had the brains of the New England people, so they weren't quite as quick to reject him, um, the stuffy people from the East Coast, because he was a brainiac, okay? They, they couldn't contend with the fact he was very well educated um, and had, though he was young, starting a good legal career. Uh, so it was hard for them to dismiss him as a country bumpkin, okay? But um, there were some things about um, him that personally, and 
I think, you know, I'm not the only person that thinks this. He went a little too far in his canned um, methods, okay? Now, um, <clears throat> he was, I think at some point he was a mild Calvinist. He wasn't really into the predestination and all that stuff. But he ended up essentially preaching Arminianism, okay? Now, I've told you what, you know, Arminianism is. We have a free will, <clears throat> and God responds. Um, God calls us all and gives us the opportunity res to respond to him, but he honors our response. If we say no to him, finally he'll give us our way. Um, but we have... The argument against Arminianism has always been, well, you're, pay, you're making salvation dependent on the person and his own acts. So it's a work salvation. It's an earning of your salvation, which is not true because the only way I have the ability, the capacity to choose is God gave that to me. I didn't cook it up myself. He gave it to me. He's the one that enables me um, to be able to choose, okay? Um, so it's, it's like the hymn, Amazing Grace, um, that, you know, it was grace that found me out. God goes after us. But what's he appealing to when he goes after us? When he gets a hold of us and he starts tugging at our heart and things of God begin, you know, to, we begin thinking about things we never thought about before and our hearts are drawn, we're not happy with the way we are. There's um, God's working on us, okay? When he does that, he's appealing to what he's already implanted in my heart, which is a dim knowledge of him, a conscience, sense of right and wrong, a strange, um, almost a homing device that I have in here, and I, I grow to feel, um, you know, a need for something, even if I may not know very well what it is. Um, God appeals to that capacity to think and reason and feel and choose in my heart, but he never compels it. He'll never force me to choose to do right. He will plead with me not to choose to go the other direction, but he won't stop me. Now, that's a fairly narrow window in our lives. There are lots of things God will stop us. He can do that. And in, sense, in a sense, he does uh, thwart our will. But only he won't thwart it in the business of loving and obeying him. The Bible's full of people who laid out great plans, you know, great kings. We're going to come and we're flat in Jerusalem and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And God just kind of, you know, he said to the prophets, I don't think so. So go tell the king not to worry about it. It isn't going to happen. Um, and God brought circumstances to bear that put an end to that plan. Now, he thwarted their plans, but not specifically He'll never thwart whether I choose to love and trust and obey him.
okay? So there's a narrow area. Uh, God is, God does thwart things we plan other than will I obey him? Will I love him, trust him, okay? Um, Amazing Grace, for instance, um, talks about God finding us out. Then the second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." So you have God causing angst because of sin, whacking us on the side of the head for, for disobeying him, yet standing ready if I turn away and from those sins and ask him to forgive me, then he takes away my fears. He forgives me. He welcomes me to himself. Um, and grace, of course, is both um, undeserved or unmerited favor, but grace also means enablement, empowerment. He, I can't turn to him. I can't even respond to God's overtures to me, except he gives me the grace to respond. So when you begin to look at it, anybody that ever stands will stand at judgment day. There will be absolutely no excuse. None. God has done absolutely everything possible to get me to go his way and turn to him. He's given me the power to turn, the, the capacity to choose. He's done everything he could do but do it for us, okay? He's greased the skids like nobody's business so that if we end up not right with God at judgment day, it is 1,000% our fault. No one will be able to charge God with being unfair or didn't give me enough chance or I didn't know, there's not going to be a case like that. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, Finney drifted towards Arminianism. And I'll get into that in a second in another kind of an issue. But Finney, by the way, he, um, halfway through his life, he founded Oberlin College. Everybody heard of Oberlin in Ohio? Okay, Oberlin is probably, I think, I think probably, I would say this, if Seattle and Portland, um, if Oberlin looked to move their campus to Seattle or Portland or San Francisco, I think those three cities would say, no, you're too liberal for us. We, you know, we're not that bad, okay? Uh, Oberlin, and that started by Finney, who was a tremendous preacher for 50 years. Um, it, it's incredible. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> Finney... This gets into the weeds for about two minutes. The orthodox doctrine of sin is that we're born with an inclination to disobey God. Okay? We're born with an inclination, um, our back to God. Um, we're not held responsible for that in the sense that some people took the position, okay, if you've got that in your heart, even if you're an infant and you die, you go to hell. That is just a satanic doctrine, okay? Um, 
no innocent child goes to hell, okay? Um, No matter what anybody says. But there is in the heart of every human being a strong inclination to self-sovereignty, self-will, to rebel against. As soon as I recognize a fence, I go push against it. You tell, you tell a human what not to do, and that's the best way that's, that they'll do it. Tell them, don't go see that movie. You can't get in the theater because it's too crowded. Tell them, don't buy that lousy you know, DVD or whatever at home. Don't do that streaming service because it's horrible stuff. You know, people are going to do it. Just that's in here. Okay? Now, in Romans... Paul makes clear at least three things about that inclination. Number one, it is, now these aren't, these are sort of big words, but you're not stupid. The word volition is will, choosing. One, this inclination here is um, pre-volitional. It exerts itself and we can witness its um, traits before a child ever reaches the age where they can choose and logically choose. So it is in my heart and operates, like I've said before, go back in the nursery, you know, we, we have eight million toys back there, at least. And you can put two kids in there and they'll fight over one of them. Um, no one had to teach them that. No one has to teach your kids to try to deceive you, to try to act like they weren't doing what they think you saw them do. Okay? You didn't have to sit down and train them to do that. Spontaneously. It's because this inclination is spontaneous. And it's pre-volitional. It is then there before you can even choose yes or no to go with your conscience. It's what bend your conscience or bend your will to always go against your conscience okay so it's pre-volitional second it is sub-volitional meaning when you reach the age of accountability you know right from wrong your conscience is functioning and you can recognize moral rights and wrongs i'm not talking about disobeying your mom and eating another cookie i'm talking about you know moral lying whatever um, it is subvolitional in this sense. Paul said, I cannot discipline myself to go against that. No matter how I try, I can't. And it is deeper down and farther back than self-discipline can reach. So it's, it's sub my will can't reach deep enough down into my heart to write that. The third thing, it is contra-volitional. Paul said, I choose to do what's right, but I do what I don't want to do. And he, you know, writing in the, as if it were ta- he was talking about himself, we don't understand it. I choose, I don't want to do. He says, the thing I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I can't do. And I don't do. Okay? So, this inclination, inherited sin, which 
all of Christianity agrees, except for a few lunatic fringe people, um, is in, born in our hearts. Finney took the position um, that sin was not quite that deeply rooted in the heart. Okay? Um, again, not this isn't weeds, but um, we have at least three um, features to us as humans being made in, quote, the image and likeness of God. Okay? We have a moral nature, and the moral nature is what's been polluted, and that's where, in the moral nature, is where inherited sin resides, okay, um, in the heart. Then we have what's called the natural image. The natural image are those um, attributes that God has. And we usually look at three main ones. Um, will or volition, power to choose, God is a choosing, willing God. Second, he is a rational being. Third, he is, he feels. So we have the power to will, to choose. We have reasoning power, and we have emotions. We have, um, or an old term for it is affections. And so in that sense, we reflect the image of God, okay? So the will and the reason and the emotions are not in the moral image. When Adam and Eve sinned, the moral image, they lost the righteousness of God in their moral image, but their natural image, they kept. They still choose. We can still choose. We can think, we feel. However, those have been affected and infected by what happened in the moral image. So my will is weakened and, and tilted. My reason is very stunted, okay? Um, and our emotions are even less trustworthy. So, now here's the thing though. Sin resides in the heart, not in the will, not in the emotions, not in the mind. Okay? Finney placed sin completely in the will. Now you might think, how long is this going to last and what's the point of this? Um, here's a place, again, of hundreds of places, where what, you, what your theology is determines your methods and how, you've, how you act. If, if, now Paul contradicts it in Romans 7, but if sin is located only in my will, the only thing I need to do to fix it is choose. Now Paul said, I choose to do good and can't do it. Finney rejected that. And Finney said, make the choice. Now, what does that mean? It means that for Finney, it was a kind of logical argument. 
um, you know, you did this, you're under judgment from God. The sentence, as a lawyer, he'd make the case, God's the judge, he's got the record, and you're charged and you're guilty and you're headed for hell. But all you got to do is just choose to turn around. And you're okay. Because there's nothing in my, there's nothing um, within me that my will can't expel. Now, did I lose everybody? So the problem then was he shallowed up the severity of sin and that it's cleared down into the grain of our hearts and made it a simple choice. So then all of your preaching is just choose, 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 choose. I'll be done in 15 minutes and we'll have an altar call and people can come to the front like you used to see at the Billy Graham, you know, sing just as I am and people stream to the front. Just make a decision, make a decision. You're, you're fine. Now, that then became um, kind of salvation by equation. Um, you know, one a plus. Well, you know what a syllogism is. A syllogism is a a course of reasoning. If A is true and B is true, therefore C has to be true. And so, Finney basically relied more on logic and people's rational power to see. I am not. This is stupid. I'm not living right. It's harming me, and so I'm going to quit. But you can't. Not if Paul's doctrine of sin is deeper down and farther back than Finney's definition of sin. Okay? Now, Finney's theology was called the Oberlin theology. And while he was Arminian, um, and of course... Well, I won't get into that yet. Um, but nevertheless, he had fantastic numbers of converts. Okay? But the question, of course, became, were they really converted? A mere choice isn't sufficient. I have to have um, my decision to obey God, to repent, to turn from my sins has got to be pre, uh, preceded by awful conviction that I am under the displeasure of Almighty God who holds my breath in His hand and the only reason I draw one more is because He chooses to let me. And if He chose, I am called up before Him now and everything written in the book He's got and he, does, he, never, he never hits delete. He's got it. And the books, it's, it's like Revelation, what one of the most sobering verses. I saw the dead, great and small, gathered before the great throne, and the books were opened. And everyone was judged by the things written in the books. Um, to clear my record and get back into the favor with God, it's more than a, I shouldn't say flippant, but just, okay, I choose. Um, 
it's got to be deeper than that. So Finney had an awful lot of converts, but the question, of course, became, did they last? Were they Christians still 10 years later? Um, was there a lasting work? Um, and in a lot of ways, no. And um, all of New England, um, much of New England, I should say, I guess, began to be referred to as the, quote, burned over district. They'd had so many um, revivalists, preachers come through, so many of these uh, revivals where you'd meet in church every single night and have different guys preach and press people to make a decision to follow Christ. Do it tonight. Um, that There was so much of that that um, I think... I, I think historic church historians would agree that that's one of the factors. That's one of the factors in um, why the New England area of the country, of course there's exceptions, but in general is not very religious. Um, they just got burned. <laughs> it's burned over. Um, I mean, there's been prairie fires to where there's nothing left to burn. Um, so anyway... Finney, Finney then was the first guy, and, and what he did, I have his book, um, Revival Lectures, okay? And I've read it. Um, revival Lectures were, whenever he was in a town, um, big or small, he would always invite as many pastors as he could, preachers throughout the city, and they would come to, let's see, he's preaching in the big first congregational church in Boston, or whatever. He gets as many preachers that are willing to come during the day, and he teaches them these methods. He teaches them how to preach to get a decision. It really was close to selling vacuum cleaners door to door, only it's Jesus. You understand what I mean? It was one of the, he was one of the first um, to apply sales pitch theories and practices to preaching the gospel, okay? Um, anyway, I gotta get going here. <clears throat> so, um, let me just kind of wrap up some of these things. Um, and I think I'll just skip some stuff and move to this. I've got at least, I can't remember here, I've got 10 or 15 things that the, um, basically you could say almost the entirety of the 19th century from, with the addition of say 17, 10 years in, in the 17th um, or, the, or the 18th. You have 1790 to up into the 1890s or 1900. Okay, that whole century is, it's one of the most interesting, it's one of the most um, chaotic, um, lively, um, religiously um, lively centuries we've ever, ever experienced as a country. Denominations sprouted up all over the place, splits occurred all over the place, and the the revivalism 
was a big part of the divisiveness in the second great awakening, which went almost a third of the um, 1800s. Split, uh, there, there was a meth, um, split in the Methodists, split in the Presbyterians, split among the Baptists were splitting all the time anyway. Um, split in the Congregationalists, um, Presbyterians, and mostly it was the pro-revivalist or anti-revivalist sympathies that caused the, the breakup. And almost always it settled down into urban and rural. The big cities of the eastern seaboard where you, and where you had the, the old, old, by this time already 200-year-old um, educational institutions, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, um, they were um, opposed to this emotional business, talking about judgment, talking about sin, talking about hell. You shouldn't do any of that. I can't get into all this. I'll mention it in a second. But uh, they, were, they were well into um, what was called German higher criticism. And it was philosophers and theologians out of Germany. Basically, it sounds really... Um, you know, daunting of a term. Wow, what's German? It's just guys, it didn't matter whether they were German or what they were, sitting around trying to pick holes in the Bible because they were arrogant and thought they knew better. That's all it is. Um, so these were ways to get look at the literature and look at, you know, whatever. And yeah, we need to know the literature. We need to know the history. We need to know a lot of things. But um, the idea that we're looking for mistakes, errors, contradictions, um, the, our, our whole base is off. Well, the Eastern Seaboard educated higher church people were heavy into German criticism and everything was rationalism, okay? Um, and of course, you have the rise of a big rationalistic denomination which is still with us, the Unitarian Universalists. Um, the Unitarians, of course, denied the, the, the Trinity. Thomas Jefferson referred to the Trinity as just a lot of religious jargon. Um, nonsense. Um, <clears throat> so you can see that division, and it's today. That hasn't left us at all. Um, you know, certain political views and political parties or sub-parties within political parties are, you know, gap-toothed Appalachians, you know what I mean, who don't believe in, they think it's killing babies, you know, um, and they don't realize that, you know, uh, transgender's fine, and they don't realize that all this nonsense um, we, we are still living today with exactly what developed in um, the, the wake of the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. Nothing's changed. Now, I think we've been more polarized, but the basic division, rural versus urban, 
frontier back then versus settled, civilized, they would say it's the same thing, okay? Now, um, <clears throat> let me just start, give, give you the list of things that rose up, things that came to be, developments that came to be in uh, say the early 1800s for, for 100 years. Let's just say most of the 1800s. One, there was a rise in emphasis on personal religious experience, meaning a conversion experience. Um, I knew, I know God spoke to me. I know he lives in my heart. Um, he's real. He's not a figment of my imagination. Um, My dad got converted in, on Okinawa, came home from World War II, had already met my mom. And um, anyway, he told her, you know, I got, got saved. And he says, I feel like, I feel like I'm supposed to be a minister. And now it didn't bother her because her, her grandfather was a Methodist preacher for circuit rider, you know, went to, had responsibility for a bunch of churches in northern Indiana. Um, he had a little library, one of those tall, they you know, just called him a secretary with the pull-out desk. I have that. Uh, it got passed down to, well, my mom got it because her, because my dad was in the ministry, so then it got into our family. Um, and then there's three pastors. My brother's a pastor, and then my brother-in-law's a preacher. Um, but since I'm the oldest, wisest, and all that, I got it, okay? Um, and when, when the house, when our house down on Overdale um, burned and it was a total loss, that was the only piece of furniture we salvaged. That was it. I, I, I think God did it. I mean, it's, that thing had gone up like, you know, it was just 50 coats of varnish on it. And, but anyway, um, so my mother said, you know, to my dad, well, if you're, gonna, if you're called a minister, you've got to go to school. And he said, well, I don't need to go to school. And she said, yeah, you're going to school. And so he went and enrolled at a Methodist school, then Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Um, and <clears throat> he went through there. And then, in the meantime, um, he contacted the conference, Northern Indiana Conference of the Methodist Church, and said, I'm a part of the such-and-such such Methodist Church in Fort Wayne, and I feel called to the ministry. And so, okay, they set up a meeting and an interview with him and start the process, which takes four or five years, of being ordained. And when they had their initial interview with him, and he goes in um, and sits down. They want to know, okay, you know, why do you tell us why you want to go in the ministry? Um, well, he told him, he said, I just, you know, told him how he got converted um, with a chaplain in the army over in Okinawa and how um, he was, as he put it, he was given a lecture a few weeks or so uh, on a gun or something, how to clean some gun, I don't know what, anyway. And he gave, him, he gave the guys a 10-minute break, and he said he was standing up there at the lectern, um, 
and he just he said he he just felt like he had heard an audible voice you belong behind a pulpit like like this you belong preaching so um he told him that now this is the you got a big table of i don't know 10 eight or 10 ministers they began to look at each other and he said couple of them kind of like this and gestured at him. God talks to him. Ha. You know what I mean? These are descendants spiritually of John Wesley and the Methodist revival. And they're sunk so far away from heart religion that they think this guy's nuts because he said, God spoke to him. Um, so, you, you have then and have had all along these kinds of divisions always develop. Okay? Now, to go back to um, the early 1800s then, um, the emphasis on personal religious experience um, and revive. Second thing, there was a rise of all kinds of splits, schisms in the current denominations um, and in the um, just forming of brand new ones. Let me just quickly, numerous Baptist organizations were formed. Presbyterian split, congregation split, the Methodist split, um, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, um, Technically, disciples of Christ don't even exist anymore. But the disciples of Christ and uh, um, the Christian church, anybody heard just, you know, the greatest church? And Church of Christ. But Church of Christ is divided up between instrumental and non-instrumental. Okay? So out of one group that started back in the 1820s, you had at least four groups by the end of the century. Okay? Um, and the no instrument, um, it doesn't believe, it, it isn't they don't believe in music. They sing, but they only sing a cappella. And the reason was um, a lot of these churches were called restorative churches, meaning they all saw were on the whole religious um, scene in America is going to hell in a handcart, and we need to get back to the New Testament. Okay, so... Some so radically did that that it's, well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about organs or pianos or horns or whatever. So we ain't doing it neither. They took the position if the Bible doesn't specifically mention it and, and t tell you you have to do it, we're not doing it. Denominations wrote down in logical order what they believed. But they didn't do that in their minds in the New Testament, so we ain't a going to neither. And so you end up with, if you've ever seen a Church of Christ, specifically, usually the non-instrumental, Church of Christ sign, no creed but the Bible, no this and that, you know. Um, and it's some attempt they think, to get back to uh, pure New Testament Christianity. Also, um, 
they, they took clear back then a weird position um, on baptism. And it's called, this is the term for it today, baptismal regeneration, meaning conversion, born again, brought to life spiritually. You are saved by being baptized, okay? Not, I ask Jesus into my heart. And as a public profession of that spiritual renewal in my heart, I therefore participate in baptism. I'm baptized uh, because this occurred. They take the position that doesn't and can't occur until the actual act of baptism. And it has to be immersion or it doesn't count. Okay? When I was in seminary, we had, you know, different churches would come and, and they'd, you know, come to our class and uh, groups that, that, you know, were kind of out of the mainstream as far as Orthodox Christianity. Um, and we had some of those people come. And, of course, the, we think when we were seminarians, we were really bright. Um, but at any rate, you know, we'd get us, we, we'd come up with questions. Okay, you ask this, I'll ask it, you know. And so they come in, these couple, three preachers from Church of Christ, and you ask them, of course, the obvious questions. Okay, if you say that you can't be saved unless you get baptized, what do you do with the thief on the cross? That's always a good question to put to the Church of Christ. Um, they, you know, he, they, the thief on the cross went in bone dry. He, you know, he never got baptized. Um, and so what are you going to do with that? Well, they went to such lengths, I remember, that one of them even tried to say that the Greek there, which is just not true, that the Greek there, when Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, they tried to say that, what did you say? Well, but, but another one is that, that the, supposedly it was asked with um, um, may is the little two-letter word that is put at the front of a sentence that is expecting a negative answer. So that really Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise? I don't think so. Um, but the, the language won't, isn't there, okay? Um, yeah, they, they, but that's another one. Today, you know, they, they, they just do everything they could do to try to get out of the fact that, you know, the thief on the cross, there was no opportunity for um, baptism. Um, I'll tell you this quickly. I think, I, yeah, I mentioned last week, Peter Cartwright, crazy Methodist um, um, circuit rider, well, he got, he was in the same territory in Indiana and Illinois where Alexander Campbell was. Alexander Campbell started the Disciples of Christ, which became Church of Christ and so forth, okay? So back in those days, you had no TV, you had no, you know, nothing. They had debates. And so being a Methodist, um, Cartwright and Campbell were bitter. I mean, they didn't agree on fundamentals. 
And so they would debate. And one of them was transcribed, and I've read it in uh, Cartwright, Cartwright's autobiography. Um, Campbell takes the position, Alexander Campbell, he says, you've got to be baptized, and it's got to be by immersion, full immersion, the whole business. Or it doesn't count, and you're not saved. You go to hell. Um, so Cartwright said Methodists would immerse if, they, if you wanted it, but uh, Methodists sprinkle. Um, or pour, you know, the little shell thing, important, you know. Um, I was such a, even though I was technically, well, I was born, into a Meth, born as a Methodist and infant baptized in the Methodist church by my dad, but by the time I was old enough to know anything, we were in a sister denomination, no longer the Methodist. But I've been such a good Methodist. I managed to get, now this you're not going to believe, I managed to get 25 full years of ministry in, which put me only two or three years before I moved here and never immersed anybody. I, I thought it was great. Um, I'm, I'm for sprinkling. You get your hand wet. That's enough. Um, but at any rate, um, so Cartwright says to Campbell, he says, okay, what if I just get into the river or whatever, the baptismal or whatever it is, waist, from the waist down? I mean, it's waist deep, not, not enough. And he said, you know, how many times he went through, I don't know. If you go in just chest deep, is that good enough? No, got to be full immersion. What if I just go in, what if I go in to my neck, but I'm scared of the water, don't you? Doesn't count. He said, what if I go in just the top of my head still dry, but, you know, doesn't count. So Cartwright's response was, since the only water that seems to matter is that that's on the very top of your head, that's why we Methodists just sprinkle. Um, well, anyway, um, the, this group were called the Campbellites, and then, as I said, four four or five denominations ended up um, coming out of that um, start. Um, let's see here. Here's another thing that a massive amount, this is the third thing, the rise of almost uncountable um, colleges, seminaries, and ministers' training schools. Now, ministerial training school would be one that was shorter. Um, you know, maybe you could, you could get through it in a year or so versus when I got ordained, um, the denomination that I was in then required a master divinity to get ordained. They said, they were clear, you can have a PhD in I don't care what. We won't ordain you. You have to get a master's of divinity. That's four years of university. Got to have a bachelor's, and then you got to go three years, full years to seminary. Um, <clears throat> so, um, because of the need, and, and and I believe it's accurate, the need for an educated ministers. Um, I really think now God can use people. Remember, the disciples were fishermen, okay, and they made fun of them because they weren't 
educated, so-called. Um, but we, we need to know what we're talking about. And I'm thoroughly in favor of a decently educated ministry. Well, that was also pretty agreed upon. So lots of schools. And we have the big ones, the Harvards, the Yales, that we knew the Puritans started. Congregational started. Um, Princeton was started by um, Presbyterians. Rutgers, the, the, every one of the Ivy League schools were started by, by churches. In fact, it's amazing the number of churches today, or number of schools today, that had their beginning as, as a church school. Um, Baylor, anybody know who Baylor? Baptist. Um, another one I found out about, Pepperdine. Pepperdine down in Southern California, uh, Church of Christ. Um, you'd never know that, you know, um, most of these schools bear no resemblance to the group that started them or the beliefs that, that they had. Um, but there's the Methodist, I can't remember how many Methodists, there's Methodist schools, ever, Drew, um, Oh, what is it? Emory uh, down in Georgia, some biggies uh, that they have. Um, but they've got, oh, they've got 50 or 60 at least colleges. Um, I would think probably Catholics might have more, um, but Methodists, the main line, Methodists, Presbyterians, lots, lots of colleges. So there's a rise of those. There was a rise of an awful lot of social organizations, and that was good and bad. First of all, it's a natural outgrowth of religious fervor to set up ways to minister to the community. Feed the hungry, um, you know, help people. That's natural. Jesus taught that. That was one of the things that more prominently typified the Methodist movement in England and in America was um, ministry to they called them then, of course, street urchins. Um, but the little kids that worked in the in the um, what do you call it? The the um, well, they made you know they weave uh, what do they call those? The, they they wove wove rugs and clothes and socks and and whatever um, the the linen mills or the you know um, anyway they would minister to those kids, the poor houses, all that kind of stuff. Um, YMCA came out of, of in, in the 1820s, 30s. Young Men's Christians Asso Christian Association. Now, there, is there a hint of it left today? And then the YWCA came, was started by Christians. Boys, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts started by Christians. Um, the Here's a, here's a famous one. There's so many you couldn't even mention. In the middle of all this in England, um, in the mid-1800s, Salvation Army um, started. Um, you haven't lived. Um, you have lived. Let's put it this way. You've not suffered until you have been to as a captive, pitiful, seven, eight-year-old little boy at a WCTU meeting. Now, does anybody here know what the WCTU is? Floyd. I used to go to 
it, listen, then you and I are marked. That explains a lot, at least about you. Um, oh, hey, my mom made us go, and all I can remember is this. You'd, you'd, there'd be four or five other pitiful, captive kids, you know, were, were shackled together in a house, and you know your memory as a little kid. It was always these old ladies that ran the thing, and their house smelled like mothballs. You know, you, you know what I'm talking about? Um, oh, man. And the, here's the thing. WCTU was Women's Christian Temperance Union. So here you are, and you're sitting in this old lady's living room, and they're reading stuff to you about demon rum. <laughs> you know what I mean? About not drinking. The horrors of drinking. Now, I, I hate alcohol, so, uh, and I see what it does. Um, seeing too much of what it does. I've seen, I've seen little kids just shaking like that when they call me over. I've been called over before the cops got there um, with a drunk dad tearing the place up and the kids bawling and screaming. Uh, I hate the miserable stuff, okay? But, WCTU meetings would drive you to drink. You know that? I mean, I was looking for something to drink after I got out of a WCTU meeting. WCTU was a nationwide organization that grew up in the mid-1800s as a part of this whole revival thing. Um, and their famous, the most famous WCTU person who was a bit of a fringe person, was a woman called Carrie Nation. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of her, but Carrie Nation, there's pictures of her in a bonnet with these little you know, glasses and a hatchet. And she would go in to bars in cities and just start chopping at the bar and wreck the place. Um, chop up the chairs, whatever, until they call the cops or whatever happened. Um, but that would be kind of the violent end of the WCTU. So, man, Floyd, <laughs> we've suffered. You know that? <laughs> At the end, the Great Tribulation, we won't go through it. We've already done our, our suffering going to WCTU meetings. Um, an, an unnumbered amount of mission societies were started in the mid-late 1800s, both um, national and foreign. Um, you know, wh whether it be inner city stuff or um, to, fr to freed slaves, because you remember the, the Civil War is in dead square in the middle of this whole century. Um, another whole thing that went on were splits over splits over revivalism in the early part of the 1800s and then other splits over slavery. The Methodist split again over slavery. The Presbyterian split over slavery. The North and South. There was, there was Methodist North and Methodist South. Um, they later grudgingly got back together, but there were some churches in the South that never would come back um, into the fold or whatever. Um, a lot of Bible societies um, sprung up, 
whether it was um, American Bible Society is a really old one. Um, even the Gideons were a little bit later, but you know those kinds of pass out um, scriptures and so forth. Um, Sunday school, the concept of Sunday school um, is out of the 1800s. Um, there was some of that in the Methodist movement in England, um, but Sunday school here in America, um, Sunday school curriculum, even vacation Bible school as a concept to do with the with kids in the summer, um, came out of the in the 1800s. Minister to kids. Um, let's see here. Uh, there were many um, groups that ministered either to poverty. That you had all kinds of peace groups um, and different reform groups. Um, like WCTU. Um, and those kinds of groups are the ones behind, what was it, 18th or 19th Amendment that outlawed alcohol? Um, and I don't know how, I can't remember how many years that lasted, 10 or something, but at any rate, though it was WCTU and the, the kind of Skid Row mission, anti, um, you know, gambling, drinking, the whole business. Um, those groups put enough pressure to, you know, outlaw alcohol till then, I think it was a 19, what was it, I don't know. Anyway, they restored it. Um, here's another thing that we'll just touch on. I can't obviously get into a night tonight, but we need to look at it. Um, during this century, and especially the early part, was also the rise of cults, which was really not heard of much in the 1700s um, they were all pretty standard European mainline churches Lutheran Anglican Catholic whatever okay um, the Mormons 1823 um, the Mormons came up in western New York in the middle of the Great Awakening and Joseph Smith and his family, for a time, converted to Methodism from nothing, um, but not very long. Um, they then, of course, Joseph Smith, um, you know, taking a break from peep stone searching for a buried treasure, um, discovered that all the churches then uh, organized, all of them were of the devil. And he was designated to start a brand new church. Um, and so he started the Mormons. We'll look at some of that uh, maybe next week. Seventh-day Adventists got started. And there's some debate over whether they're a cult or not. I kind of think they are. But... Um, well, they, there's a couple of doctrines. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in, um, they believe in what's called annihilation of the wicked. They believe in this crazy doctrine of investigative judgment that everybody, is, everybody who dies is not conscious. They're, it's soul sleep. They're still in the grave. Their, person, their, their, their spirits don't go, you know, it's like uh, Ecclesiastes. When we lay aside our body, says our spirit returns to God who gave it. Well, they believe that our spirit stays in the grave. You're in a case of kind of suspended animation, unconscious, and you're staying there because Jesus is trying to figure out what to do with you. 
Now, I'm not being real fair to them, but I'm fair enough, okay? Um, um, they believe you're judged on not only your own life, but the impact of your life on subsequent generations, family members, whatever else. And so how could Jesus judge somebody, decide whether they go to heaven or go to hell, until the, the impact of their life plays out? And it might take 10 generations. If you're Adam, you're done. Okay? Adam, uh, his impact is still being felt. He's a goner. Um, and so... Jesus is, he's in the, he's, he's moved into the Holy of Holies in, I think it was October of 1944, okay? I'm making none of this up. Um, and he's been at it ever since. So he's got, you know, 100 and, he's coming up on, he's 180 years that he's been in the Holy of Holies in heaven trying to figure out what to do with people um, who I guess their impact has already petered out so he can go ahead and judge them. Um, but they're nutty enough that, um, plus they go to church on Saturday. Um, but anyway, um, so <clears throat> the Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, all got their start um, in kind of the middle-ish, middle, say, 25 to 75, 18s, um, is when these fairly major cults um, got going. Um, Christian scientist Mary Baker Eddy, um, Boston. Boston is where the mother church is, or the Christian scientist. And she never died. She instructed her, her followers when she was on her deathbed. <laughs> um, she said, Do, you cannot tell anybody or we don't use the phrase so-and-so died um, it's went away so Mary Baker Eddy went away um, I can't remember maybe it was in the early 1900s but um, that was that's a crazy one too there we're not here you guys think you're here but you're really not um, you ever you know, if you visit with somebody in the hospital who's a Christian scientist, what, you know, really it's a legitimate question is what are you here for? The, the, the surgery you just had, you didn't really have. And the condition you had didn't exist. Well, so why are you here? Um, Jonathan Winters had a routine about his, you know, that he, of course, made up. About his wife, he saved money flying because he could put her in cargo. And... It didn't matter if it was cold and there was no food or anything else because she was a Christian scientist. So, you know, <laughs> it didn't matter. She wasn't really there. She didn't really, she thought she felt cold, but she wasn't. Um, anyway, okay. One thing we'll hit next week that we, that is, is um, it's the only thing I've got left on the 1800s, but it's really critical and it is a huge portion of any church history of American church history and that's the holiness movement or some called it the perfectionist movement those were usually people who were you know opposed it rose of course along with the Methodists because the Methodists believed in two works of grace we are saved by faith in a moment and we are entirely sanctified per 1 Thessalonians 5, 
cleansing of the inherited nature of sin in a moment. Um, and as the Methodist Church began to drink of German higher criticism in the seminaries, which were pumping out guys every June to go pastor, who were bringing these, maybe the Bible's not true ideas, um, the Methodist Church began to shed people. And the camp meetings were a major, major, major um, shot in the arm for Methodism and the doctrine of sanctification um, because the meth many Methodists were no longer hearing it in their own churches. And so these camp meetings um, would be shared with everybody from you know Quakers, Methodists, and then a lot of new denominations came out as Methodism continued its slow decline at, into liberalism, then you have a, there must be 60, 80 different churches that in the 1800s, a few in the 1900s, came out of the Methodist church. Um, there's the Congregational Methodists, there's the Independent Methodists, there's the Free Methodists, there's the Evangelical Methodists, there's the Primitive Methodists, um, there's the Wesleyans, there's the Church of the Nazarene, there's the Church of God Anderson, Indiana, um, there's Church of Christ and Christian Union, which we recently joined, there's the Evangelical Church of North America, which we used to be in, but, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day about the evangelical church, which I was a part of since I was like two, um, still just deeply grieves me that the direction that they're going. But they walked away from the doctrine of entire sanctification. And nobody would preach it. And I was about the only one that would say anything um, when I go to conference here. Um, but they are now probably this summer going to just merge with another group that's about as faithful to their Wesleyan roots as the evangelical church was, and they'll cease to be. Um, so someone was asked, a former general super, superintendent, um, a guy sent me an email the other day about the whole thing, and I was talking to him. Out in, he's out in Oregon. And he mentioned this general superintendent who's been retired for quite a few years, that he was asked, what's the, difference between the, what's the difference between the evangelical church and the Methodist church? He said, about 50 years. That's too bad. But you know what? Uh, I've steeled myself to a certain degree not to just be too worked up about it because it's been going on since Adam and Eve. Okay, Martin Luther wouldn't set foot. Maybe he'd go to a Missouri Synod church. But an evangelical Lutheran church, he wouldn't even go to the parking lot. John Wesley wouldn't set foot inside of a Methodist church, mostly today. Um, John Calvin wouldn't set foot in most Baptist churches. Um, but it happens. It's, it's, and it happens about every... It's like the book of Judges. There arose a generation that knew not the Lord nor His mighty acts. And it's usually the third generation. Heard this said so long or so many times. First generation has the doctrine in their head and the experience in their hearts. The second generation may have the doctrine in their heads, but they don't have the experience in their hearts. And the third generation has neither. That's where we're at.
So at any rate, there was just an explosion of denominations in the 18, uh, late 1800s. And many of those churches now today, especially those that came out of the um, Methodist church, are going the same way. You had the same circumstances in those denominations that left the Methodist church because of liberalism are now liberal. It just, it's just a, if I were God, it'd be a boring, repetitious kind of a thing. Anyway, we got to get out of here. <clears throat> so we'll look next, next week, we'll look a little more at the cults. We'll look at this holiness, the holiness movement. And then you get into very, very early um, uh, 1900s. And here's where primarily you have the rise of, of Pentecostal, which then you have kind of parallel but different charismatic um, in the 1900s. But f to be honest, other than foreign missions, Western civilization, particularly America, 1900s is not a good century um, because it's been almost nothing but decline on every front. Um, so on that happy note, um, we'll pray and quit. Father in heaven, again, even though there are things, some things that are discouraging, they've been going on for a long time and you're still here. And so, Lord, you're able to help us and you just don't lose, it seems, ever. You don't lose patience, you just start another group. You always keep your truth alive somehow. And so we're grateful for that. Keep us now, we pray, as we leave this place tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. You are dismissed. We got two Wednesday nights to finish. <clears throat>